Man, that was Joseph Gibbons. Man, it is great to be back with you. I was beginning to wonder on Monday if we were going to be able to get back with you. Uh, but man, we had some delays, but we were able to get back uh, in time. So we were uh, excited to, uh, to be here. Uh, I will tell you, man, the Vegas trip went great for all of you that were praying for us and our team. We took uh, 12 and a half. We took 12 and a half people. Uh, it was 12 adults and then an infant uh, with us, uh, which was great. Uh, Molly was kind of our, uh, she was our uh, mascot for the, for the whole week. So morale boosting when we needed it. Uh, it was extremely hot. Uh, and everybody goes, oh, well, it's a dry heat. Well, so is fire, but you don't hear people not complaining about it, you know, engulfed in flames. Oh, it's okay. It's fine. It's a dry heat. Uh, it was hot. It was crazy hot, like 120 degrees hot. Uh, but, man, it was, it was a lot of fun. We got a lot accomplished. And we show you that video, one, to celebrate what God did, but also uh, because we want to keep in front of you uh, this Give to Go Missions offering. So every year we will have a Give to Go Missions offering. It is the single missions offering, the, single, the only mission offering that we take up all year. Uh, but we give you an option to do that in quarterly installments. So for some of you that gave a one-time gift, uh, thank you for that. We're, we're so excited for that. Uh, October, it will come up again. So we will track the same calendar, giving calendar for next year. But if you gave uh, or, or you put down to give quarterly or some other way throughout the year, we want to remind you of that because all that we did over there came from money that you guys were able uh, to donate. We paid our ways to go over there, but all of the supplies and all of that stuff was purchased through that Give to Go fund. So know that that's what we support all of our missions, uh, partnerships locally, statewide, and uh, in Favor City in, in Las Vegas, but also uh, all of our offerings as a church. So the Annie Armstrong, Lottie Moon, if you've been in Baptist world for a long time, you know those names, Annie Armstrong. Uh, uh, Excuse me, Myers Mallory uh, is actually some funds that we received as a church because of a church plant in the state of Alabama. So we give to that as well. And so uh, that is where that money goes. So we just want to keep that in front of you. We would love for you uh, to continue to give that as you have pledged to do so. But man, uh, like I said, great week. We're, I'm excited to be back with you. This is our last message in the book of Mark. Uh, we have had three months that we've split up over the course of a year, uh, and so this is our very last message in the book of Mark. When you, uh, when I was, I was thinking about uh, my message, and it reminded me of I have, I was a youth pastor before I was a pastor. I don't mind planning events. Uh, I'm pretty good at it, I would, I would say, uh, where people leave and go to a place and have to stay in a hotel or stay wherever. I'm pretty good at planning those things. As a student pastor, uh, that looks different as a lead pastor, a campus pastor. Uh, when you're leading a group of teenagers, as in the adult, you get to call the shot. And it don't matter if the kids like it or not. What you say goes, right? I've got the keys, I've got the transportation, and we're going to go where I say, we're going to do what I say do, right? And if you don't like the hotel, well, you're welcome to voice those opinions, 
but ultimately we're going to do what I want to do. So we have stayed at some really sketchy places as a student pastor, like, and the kids just deal with it, right? Like deal with it. We'll do better next year, but you're fine. We're fine and you'll survive, right? I was discussing this with my wife. Uh, when you're taking adults on a trip, there's some nuances to that. Uh, adults, when you take full-grown adults, they're usually not quite as agreeable and flexible to some of those things. So I am been notorious, and I think it's unfair. There have been two trips that we have gone on, and both of them, we have stayed at relatively sketchy areas. I, how was I supposed to know they were running a prostitution ring out of that hotel in Tuscaloosa? I don't know how I was supposed to know that, but I was, and I have caught some flack. So this trip was going to be different. It was going to be better. We were going to stay at a nice place. <laughs> Y'all, if I'm lying, I'm dying. I promise you, that's not a lie. Uh, see Crystal afterwards if you want details. Um, guys, people were arrested at that hotel. I had already left, and that made it even better. Um, so anyway, I was going to get it right this time. So I get on VRBO, and I find the perfect house for us in Henderson. And by the way, five-bedroom homes are not easy to come by in Henderson. Uh, they just they just aren't, and I needed to make sure that all of the married couples could be in the same room together because that gets on people's nerves. And so, like I, I mean, I had got it down to it. He found the perfect house. So excited about it, and about three days before we leave, I get on VRBO because I'm trying to get like the check-in information from our tenant, and I don't see our trip on the my trips section. VRBO. I go on the canceled trip side of that though, and our past trips, our canceled trips, and there is the house that we're supposed to stay in in three days. In the middle of Madison Walmart, I leave my wife to fend off our three children by herself. I go to the parking lot. I go in the car, and I prepare, right, to let somebody have it, right? And I remember looking in my inbox, looking for a number that at the time it was given to me, it did not matter to me. There are two types of people in the world. There are two type of pe types of people and only two types of people. There's one type of person that when the confirmation number is read to them of whatever they've purchased, they are writing it down with pen and paper. There is another type of person, however, I fall into this category, that as they are Reciting the number, I am pretending to write and not writing because, hey, it's all covered. I'm going to get a confirmation email anyway. Like, everything is good, right? Like, confirmation number, not important. I'll have the email. All is good with the world. Well, three days before we leave for Vegas, I am in a panic because I can't find this confirmation number anywhere. And I'm reaching out to the tenant. And of course, it takes, you know, three hours for her to respond. And I'm dying. Like, I am sweating it. And then I find out that I just didn't have the most up-to-date VRBO app. And as soon as I updated it, I forgot that I had canceled that house earlier to get a better rate. And so it was still only canceled from that. And so all was okay. We actually had a place to stay and it was nice, wasn't it? It was nice. All right, we've got, we got, had a place to stay. It was fine, but I was freaking out. Why? Because I could not find the confirmation because I was about to make some serious claims. Like, like $3,000 worth of claims 
that I was about to make to someone on the other end of the line. And if I didn't have any confirmation number to back that up, I can make all the claims in the world. Right? I make all the claims in the world, but sir, you were given a confirmation. Yeah, I acted like I was writing it down. I didn't write it down, right? Like, I was stressing. And what we see for Jesus in these last two chapters of Mark is exactly that. He is providing confirmation for the authority that he has claimed. The authority that he is taught with, the authority that he is healed with, the authority that he has done signs and wonders with, and that he has claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah. When you ride in on the colt of a donkey to Jerusalem and people are singing Hosanna, you have made a significant claim. We find in the last two chapters is Jesus' confirmation of all the claims that he's made. And so turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Right, whether it was through his Galilean ministry, whether it was through his ministry to his disciples, and then to the masses, right, all of the people, all of the nations, right, Jesus needed to confirm in the hearts and the minds of people. And by the way, we'll see that the disciples struggled with the confirmation. Before Jesus was raised, the disciples found themselves in the same panic, right? We have followed this man for three years of our life, and it seems like he's gone now. Everything that he promised, everything that we followed, man, we are some kind of ignorant. But Jesus provides confirmation, and in so doing, he draws people to himself. The first thing that we see is we see how he draws those who are far from God. Those who are far from God, far from God's will. Look at verse 34 of Mark 15. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is... Uh, This is the same verbiage that is used in Psalm 22, right? A messianic hymn. uh, And and he cries out, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? There's 15 times where double names are used in Scripture. And each of those double names, this is a great Bible study, by the way, if you want to look at it sometime. Each of those times are key pivotal times in the history of Israel, in the history of the world, in the history of the church, right? Abraham, Abraham. Martha, Martha, right? There's these double names, and here we find the greatest example. My God, my God. It was meant, it was a, a literary technique meant to evoke strong emotion. Jesus is on the cross having been rejected right by man. He's rejected by Pilate. He's rejected by the religious institution of the day. Even rejected by many of his disciples, right? Peter being chief among those. And he is hanging there, right? And his concern, he speaks to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 37, it says that Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. Now, if we read Mark and only Mark, you can get frustrated by the lack of detail. Mark is a just the facts, ma'am kind of guy, 
right? Like he is, he is giving a synopsis of what Matthew, Luke, and John go in great detail about. He gives us one thing that Jesus says. Well, we know that Jesus actually said seven things on the cross. Again, another Bible study topic for you to leave here today is to study. Man, from today to next Sunday, the seven things that Jesus said on the cross and the different things that he addressed. But he says seven things. This is probably the fourth thing that Jesus says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? But he's there, he's on the cross, and for the first time, Jesus is feeling the weight of separation between him and God. Jesus was co-equal and co-eternal with God. He was God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Jesus. So Jesus, who was equal with God in perfect unity with God, experienced something in this moment that he had never experienced, and that was separation from God. We see God's perfect divinity because only God... Only a holy God, right, we're just saying it, could take away the sins of the entire world. Only God could do that. And in the middle of Jesus bearing the weight of the sin of the whole world, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, if Jesus would have had time to write a thesis, he could have explained in great detail why God, in fact, had turned his back from him. Jesus knew the task that was at hand. He knew what would happen when he bore the weight of our sin. He knew that God would turn his face. The Father would turn his face from his Son. And so he knew what would happen. But in his humanity, his great divinity saving the world from their sin, in his great humanity crying out in pain and in torment and now experiencing separation from the Father, my God, why have you forsaken me? Great emotion, great heartache, great despair we see his divinity and his humanity. But he doesn't stop there, right? We know other things that he says. We know that at the end, after this, he begins to say other things. He would say, toward the end, he would say, it is finished. He would say, tetelestai, right? The price of sin has been paid in full. Jesus, who had known no sin, Paul would say later with a New Testament lens, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. So, The one who knew no sin, who was of the standard of sinlessness and righteousness, allowed himself to become our sacrifice. So placed himself in his sovereignty in our place, in our filth, in our wretchedness, in our despair. He placed himself in our place so that we could, if we would respond in faith and trust in him, that we could be at the position that he was, righteous and blameless before the Father, right? This is how God calls us to be 
his children, right, is only through the work of Christ. And so he claim, he cries out, it is finished. We don't have the details of what he cries in Mark, but we know from the other gospel accounts. He cries out, it is finished. And then at the end, he would cry out, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. All Luke says is he uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. He gave up the ghost. Look at verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We know because of other gospel accounts that there was darkness from the time Jesus had begun the process of crucifixion to the time that he died. There was darkness over the face of the earth. We know there was a great earthquake that would split the veil of the temple. And we're not talking about little sheep you know, little little bed sheet, right, that stretched over the Holy of Holies. We're talking about two or three inch fabric that was torn from top to bottom. bottom. We know the theological ramifications for that. But there is this man who is here that is hearing all that Jesus is saying, that is taking in all the sights and all the sound, that is seeing everything that's happening. He's already seen Jesus look at a crowd that has crucified him and tells, tells God to forgive them. He looks at all of that, and the attention in Mark turns to a centurion. A centurion soldier, more than likely, who was the man who was given command over all of the Roman soldiers in that time, all of the Roman soldiers who would make the crucifixion happen of these three men. He would have been the one that gave charge. A centurion was someone who was given charge over 100 men. That's what being a centurion meant, a century, right? Century is 100 years. Centurion was over 100 men. And so he would have been leading the century of men who would have been responsible, more than likely, for the death of these two, the crucifixion of these three men. And all of the sum total of everything that he took in Listen to what it says in verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this is the Son of God. A pagan centurion who worshipped not one but many gods would look at Jesus and all that has gone on around him and say, truly, this was the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father, let this confession be the rallying cry for your church. Lord, way back then, moments after Jesus would breathe his last physical breath to now... Over 2,000 years ago, years later, we would worship the Son of God. That we would say in our hearts, in our minds, that truly you are the Son of God. Whether we are far from you, whether we are near to you, uh, Lord, that we are your, that you are the son of God, that you have paid the ransom for sin, and then we would live on mission for you. May that be 
Lord, true of us today as we dive into your word. In your name we pray. Amen. When I was a kid, I used to think the worst sin you could ever sin, all right, would be like to kill somebody. Right, like I mean, that's that's the worst. That's the worst. Kill somebody. Mm, that's that's number one. And then, as I got older, I remember reading about these Roman guards who had crucified Jesus. And so, if murder is number one on the worst things you could do, killing the Son of God, man, you are sinner numero uno. Hello, Hell Express. You have killed the Son of God. Are you kidding me? Like, this, this has to be the biggest sinner ever, the worst sinner ever. Forget what Paul said, right? He's got to be the worst. He killed Jesus. And if there was anybody further away from God in that moment, the centurion who would give consent to murder the perfect son of God, surely he was far from God. Yet the events of Jesus' death, Jesus brought tons of people, many people to the father in his life. But even in his death, he was drawing people to himself. And not just people that were close, not just his disciples. He was drawing those who were far from God. Man, of all the people to say, this is the son of God. The centurion who just murdered him would be the least likely person to make this profession of faith. Right? But truly, this is the son of God. But it didn't end there. Right, Mark 15, verse 42. Read with me. And when, he, when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation... That is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea. Who was Joseph of Arimathea? He was a prominent, respected member of the council. He was of this council who would be the ones ultimately that would hold Pilate's feet to the fire and say, Hey, I know you don't see anything wrong with this dude, but we do. And we have a big pull with the public in this area. And so crucify him or there's going to be problems. Let his blood be on us and our children. It was the council that voiced these things. Well, there was a man, Joseph of Arimathea, that had voted against this, voted against them doing this. He found himself in much the same boat as Nicodemus, right? Who seemed to be close to the kingdom of God, looking to the kingdom of God, seeing things that Jesus did and maybe not completely convinced, but at least convinced to the extent that he would shrink away in the middle of the night to go talk to Jesus so that none of his friends saw. So they didn't see, he didn't lose face with any of his buddies that had great power in that area. He was a member of the, this council. He was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. It says there that he took courage. Please understand that the decision that he was making there was not just to take Jesus' body. It was to profess to be a follower of Jesus. To align himself, to receive Jesus' body and to give his body a proper burial was to align himself directly against the religious institution of the day that had crucified him. And so he took 
courage, regardless of what that meant for him and his household and his family. He took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then it says in verse 46, and, Jesus, and Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. I believe it's John that actually tells us Nicodemus helped prepare his body. That Nicodemus making a similar conscious decision to follow Christ instead of going with the trend of the people that he was running with at that time. These were people that were a part of the crowd, that no, they may not have actually driven the nails. The centurion may have directly driven the nails in Jesus' hands. But this group, this group of people, the council, the Sanhedrin, they would have been the people that forced the Romans' hand to do that very thing. So you have someone who was literally overseeing Jesus' direct execution, and now you have two people that are representative of a group, a body of, of people who would have given indirectly Jesus' orders for crucifixion. Both of them, as far away from God as you can imagine, both groups of people, yet God was using Christ in his death to bring people to himself. The last people that you would expect God was drawing to himself through the work of Christ through his death so he is drawing people near through his death those who are far he is drawing them near through his death but he's also developing those who are near look at Mark 16 when the Sabbath was passed Mary Magdalene Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so that they may go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. That's why we believe it would have taken at least two, maybe three men to move the stone. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Praise the Lord. Right? Strike up the band. Hallelujah. He has risen. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee there you will see him just as he told you. Hallelujah. He's risen. But look at their response. And they went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, there's a lot of commentary on why they responded this way. Women's opinions in that day were typically neglected. They were overlooked for men's opinions. Uh, maybe it was that they really didn't believe what was going on. We don't know why these women, but the angel told them, go and tell everyone. And in fear, instead of triumph and victory, Jesus has been risen. Their message is fear and seclusion. 
Those who had been with Jesus, those that had walked with him in his earthly ministry, those that knew what it was like, what Jesus was like, they were there when Jesus foretold his death three different times to the disciples. They had experienced that. They had heard all of those things. Yet they were afraid and they were fearful. See, Jesus' death wasn't just about drawing those who were far from God. It was about drawing those that had a nearness and an intimacy with Jesus in his physical ministry. They were afraid, and they didn't tell anybody. Remember that although Jesus had told them about his resurrection based on their response, they had a bunch of questions, and oftentimes they just had other things they wanted to talk about more. And so none of them truly understood what Jesus was saying when he was telling them that he would be raised. And so the women didn't respond well. John tells us that Mary Magdalene responded in a very specific way. She was secluded. She was shocked and astonished and afraid. But she remained near the tomb. And then therein we find Mark 16, verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week... Right? When did they come? They came on the first day. So the others had left, and now we just have Mary Magdalene by the tomb. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. Right? We know the interaction because of other gospel accounts. Again, we don't have the details. Right? Remember, she thought he was a gardener, didn't know who he was. He was talking to her, and then all of a sudden he says her name, and she recognizes his voice. The Holy Spirit opens her ears. She recognizes that it's Jesus. He tells her, don't touch me. Right? We know the whole, the whole experience, but it says here that he appeared to Mary. But this is what he says Mary did. Mary didn't shrink back in fear. Mary wasn't astonished, and she didn't tell no one. Look what happened in verse 10. She went and told those who had been with him. She told everybody as they mourned and wept. Mary finally gets it. Mary Magdalene finally gets it. And she goes and she tells the others. Now, these are men that had been with Jesus. They were in his inner circle. Certainly, they would respond appropriately. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it and how disappointing right those that knew jesus best were around in the moses closest friends did not believe even though jesus had told him he would be raised now mary has told him that he would be raised and listen to this in verse 12 after these things he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country they were walking on the road to emmaus and he appeared to them and they came back and told the rest but they did not believe them Listen, they were stubborn in their unbelief. There is no way. We watched him die. There is no way that Jesus was raised. And afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves. Jesus didn't say, you know what? I, I told you before the cross. Mary's told you. These two others have told you. If you don't believe them, then I'm done with you. Mark just casually puts in the sequence of events, verse 14. Afterward, after their unbelief, after their failure, 
He appeared to the eleven themselves, and as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Jesus dealt with their stubbornness, but Jesus revealed himself even to the eleven. Jesus wasn't just drawing people far away from him. He was directing and leading and developing those who were even his closest followers who had followed him for so long and still had missed what it meant to have faith in Christ and faith in in the Father, right, to provide salvation. And so he's drawing not just those that are far, but those that are near as well. But there's a reason why he's doing the death of Christ draws all people. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ draws all people. But there's a reason it doesn't end there. The gospel is not Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sin. He died on the cross and was raised to save me from my sin. That is not the gospel. That is part of the gospel. But if that is the only gospel that you have heard, your gospel is vastly lacking. Because there is something that happens when we are drawn near to Jesus. That he does within us. That then causes us to look beyond ourselves. So he doesn't just draw those who are far. He doesn't just develop those who are near. But he does all of that because, thirdly, we see the dispatching of those near and far. The dispatching, the, the sending out. And listen, every gospel writer records it a little bit different. But listen what Mark says. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. He says in Matthew 28, 19, and and 20, all power and authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. He says in Acts 1, 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. There is a sending out. God has drawn people through the work, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, but he does it to start the first generation of who will be the new kingdom. Those who would be citizens of the new kingdom, who have been drawn near to Jesus, who have been transformed by his work, and who will then be sent out to a lost and dying world. Listen to what he says. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will not be will, will be conde- does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick. They will recover. So then, the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken these things to him, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now we can get lost in all of the details of what he describes the power of God to look like, right? We have examples of Paul being bit by a serpent, right, and living, and in so doing proves to be a messenger of God, and everyone listens to him, and there's revival on Malta, 
right? We, we see examples of some of these things happening, but instead of getting into the details, basically what we need to understand, what Jesus is identifying is a movement of people that cannot be stopped by earthly means. There is a movement that is beginning. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. And if the kingdom of God, if you are moving out in the power of the kingdom, you cannot be stopped. His gospel will go forth. And y'all, we are all residual effects of what Jesus said would happen in Mark chapter 16. The gospel has gone forth. It doesn't mean that we are impervious to pain or hurt or tragedy, what it means is God has given us a power. We just sang it. The resurrection power runs in our veins too. Christ has made us new. The same power, Paul would say, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you and lives within me. He has drawn us near and far to himself so that we could be sent near and far to a lost and dying world. There is mission for us. The gospel didn't just come to you. The gospel is not Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead to save me from my sin. The gospel is that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to save me from my sin so that I could be enlisted in his glory to the ends of the earth. As you are drawn to God, as you experience him, you will in the same breath be sent to preach the same message of transformation that came to you to those that God has called you to reach. He is sending you out. Well, football season is coming up. I don't know about y'all, but I'm fired up about it. My life, I love the fall. Hunting and football all at the same time gets, gets underway. I've got a special investment in football this year. My sons are in full pads, both of them. My middle kid may hurt somebody, all right? He has got a headhunter written all over him. My, my oldest is pretty, actually pretty athletic, and he, he may score some touchdowns. I'm really excited. I'm excited to watch it happen. Let me tell you how gypped I would be if I went to their first game. They all gathered on the field. The clock started, and they huddled. They huddled for a minute or two, and then three, and then the quarterback called a timeout, and they ran to the sideline, and they huddled on the sideline four, five, six minutes. Then they ran back on the field, and they got back in another huddle, and they just allowed the entire first quarter to go by while they were sitting in a huddle. So went the second quarter the third, and the final quarter. And never a play was run. I don't know about you, but I'd feel pretty gypped. I'd be pretty disappointed not to see my kids in action. If I went to a college game and saw that, I'd be ready to get my money back, right? Because it's not about the huddle. The huddle's important, right? Getting together and, and understanding the vision behind where you're going, what the goal is, how we're going to get there, the steps of the discipleship, of the process, all that's important. How do we get this 
pigskin into that end zone. That's important to know. We talk about that in the huddle. But unless a play is run, unless we are a part of the action, the ball never moves. The point of football is not to watch a bunch of people talking about action. The point of football is to watch the people take action. And I'm, unfortunately, I believe in the church today, and we, we talked about this in Vegas, by the way. There are, there are believers, man, that are active and that are winning souls and that are doing incredible things. There are just as many lost folks. Y'all, in Vegas, we saw a lot of things. Some we did want to see and some we didn't want to see, right? There are some really lost folks. And if you ask them, you know what they'll tell you? They're lost. They'll just tell you. They don't care because they are, they, they are, there is no gray area. Right? I don't have any spiritual beliefs and I don't intend on having any. Well, okay. <laughs> That's fine. Thanks for the talk. See ya. You know, like the battle lines are drawn. But in comfortable North Alabama, there's a comfort level. It's why when you talk to one of your friends about coming to church, it's why their head falls. There's an understood cultural understanding in rural North Alabama in the belt buckle of the Bible belt that you're supposed to go to church. Now, not all, everybody does, but you, you should. It should. It's a priority. We should make that a part of what we do. We put such an emphasis on the gathering. Churches will spend all this money and all this time trying to figure out how they can get more and more butts in seats. How they can emphasize the huddle, get people to their huddle, and all the while missing the fact that the New Testament church is about drawing near to Jesus so that we can be sent out to make an impact and a difference. It's not the huddle that defines the church. It's not this gathering. It's the light and the salt that we take as the temples of the living God within us. And how we make a difference in the world that we live in. Is that you? And if you have a relationship with Christ in this room, do you live with that mission? It's a foregone conclusion to the New Testament church. The last verse. And they went out and preached everywhere. Why? They'd been drawn in. Jesus drew them in, they were transformed by the work of Christ, and they left different. Has Christ made that difference in your life? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? The gospel is about the glory of God. It is about the greatness of God, not the betterment of us. It's not about making ourselves feel better or be in better standing or not have to go to an eternity in hell. That's not the gospel. We have a very selfish gospel sometimes. There's no transformation of our heart and spirit without an incredible umption and sending of God's spirit within us to a lost and dying world. 
There's no precedent that we have in Scripture of somebody who came to Jesus, who was transformed by Jesus, and who didn't share Jesus with anybody. It doesn't happen. It's not in Scripture. And I would argue that 2,000 years later, that reality is still true. We've been drawn in. If you've been changed by God, you've been changed for His glory, not your own. And so if you're here today and you don't know that you have a relationship with Christ, listen, you may be far from God. You may be real far. In fact, if somebody saw you move today, they would go, dang, I can't believe he or she moved. I can't believe he or she became a Christian today. I don't believe it. You may be so far away from God. And there may be so many people that are skeptical of the decision that you make. You just may think, man, there's no way that anybody would believe this was genuine. I'm so far away from God. God, Jesus died to make those who were far near to him. You can be safe today. He has made that available to you if you would respond in obedience. You would trust him and surrender your life. Lay down your life and allow him to take charge and take control. You can be saved today. Maybe you find yourself in that category, that near category, right? You have an association with God. You have an association with Jesus, with church, with church people. Maybe there's never been that transformation. Maybe you need to come today and surrender your life to Jesus. Begin that relationship with him. And then there's plenty of us in this room, I know, that have been living their life for something less than the mission that God has placed in their life. We have been blessed so that we can be a blessing to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. I'm not content as your pastor, won't be content as your pastor until we see that happening. People leading their friends, their family, their coworkers, their classmates, leading them to the transformation that they've experienced through Jesus. It's what it means to be the church. And so whatever decision you need to make today, I pray that you would respond. I'm here at the front. How you respond is simple. I'm here at the front. Would love to talk to anybody about any decision that you need to make. Maybe you don't even know what decision you're needing to make. You just know you need to do something. Come talk to me. We'll figure it out together. Forgetting what everybody else thinks, would you respond to the invitation of God in your life today? Maybe you're here. Whatever decision needs to happen, the enemy is just working on you. And he is giving you every reason why you don't need to move. Would you be obedient to God rather than man, rather than the opinions of others, rather than the opinions of, of what somebody else might think? Would you just respond and be right with God? today. Be courageous enough to do that. Whatever it is, whatever decision you need to make, this is your time to respond. In the moment, I'm going to pray. When I get done praying, I want you to find me here at this front, here at this altar. I'd love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ or any other decision that needs to be made today. Father, let our heart be your home. May we decide to follow you those who are near, those who are far. God, may you enlist us in your work. Lord, we bind Satan from this room, from any foothold that he may have. God, we just pray that your people would 
operate in freedom, would work in freedom, would worship in freedom today. Lord, as we get our lives right with you, it's in your name we pray. Amen. And amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? Would you come? If that's you, whatever decision needs to be made, would you come?